the pinnacle of every worship service should always be the exposition of the Word of God. And so may I encourage you to open this infallible record to Matthew chapter 9. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. We continue to make our way verse by verse through this Gospel. And today we find ourselves in verses 1 through 8 as we read about the Lord Jesus Christ and His ability to forgive us of our sin. Follow along as I read Matthew 9, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, Rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. But when the multitudes saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Dear friends, whenever we come to the sacred record of the Word of God, it's very easy for us to kind of look over a story in a superficial way rather than looking deeply into the text to try to understand the character and the purposes of God. And today is an example of such a story that very often we overlook. I remember when I was a child, I can still see the Sunday school teacher with the little board, the um, little figures that they would put on the board and they I can remember the the four men carrying the paralytic and letting them down into the or letting him down into the house. And we're going to learn more about that this morning. But but it's far more than a flannel graph. Right. And we want to look into some of that here this morning. I would encourage you to go with me on a journey as we endeavor to understand some of the rich truths that we see here in this text. Because as we look into this text, we're going to learn much about the deity of Christ, the doctrines of sin and salvation, the power of faith and the importance of forgiveness, and even the veracity of Scripture as we discover yet another example of fulfilled prophecy, which this is. So may I encourage you, whenever you come to the Word of God, you want to ask questions like, why did the Holy Spirit put this text here? What what is the real purpose here? What is He saying? What type of theological truths are being communicated here and how should I apply them to my life? And might I say that in Matthew's gospel, as we come to this text this morning, we have far more than just a historical record, even though it is indeed that. But rather what we see are some amazing insights into the redemptive purposes of God through Jesus Christ As we look at chapters 8 and 9 of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that out of the thousands of miracles that Jesus performed, Matthew records nine of these miracles, three sets of three. And each one of these really reveal a progressive fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messianic kingdom. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees that were following around watching what Jesus was up to certainly could see that what was going on here was, in fact, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The numerous passages in the Old Testament that prophesied about the Messiah's power and authority over nature and disease and Satan and sin had to be obvious to them as they observed what Jesus was doing. In fact, if you look at these miracles, you will see that each one is an undeniable fulfillment an overwhelming evidence to validate Jesus' claim that he was, in fact, God, 
the Messiah, the Savior and the Lord. So here today we see Jesus forgiving sin and healing paralysis. And I want to divide the text this morning into four parts. We want to look at the power of faith, first of all, and then the passion of forgiveness, a pattern of futility and the prominence of fear. First of all, let's get the picture. Jesus now gets into a boat, a vessel right there on the Sea of Galilee. He's leaving the country of the Gadarenes where, as we learned last week, he delivered the two uh, demoniacs from their demon possession. Now he's going to cross back over into what the Gospel of, Ma- of Mark and even Luke would also add, uh, that, that this was his city, the city of Capernaum. They call it Capernaum. If you go over there today, it refers to the city of Nahum. We think that perhaps Nahum the prophet originated from this place. But he's going back to his own city now, and this is where Jesus was staying. Much of his earthly ministry occurred in this area around Capernaum. He's staying in Peter's house. And the houses there of that day are, frankly, not a whole lot different than they are today. If you go there, you will see that most of them are two floors, maybe three. You're not allowed to go more than three. And in that day, the second floor was really an open floor. It was a place many times with no covering whatsoever. There many times were ways of getting into the main room below through the upper room. But in most all of the cases, there were stairways or stairwells that that went up the outside of the house so that you could go immediately to the second floor. It was used kind of like we would use a patio or like a deck. It was a nice, cool place to go in the evening. And many times they would eat and even sleep there. In fact, this would have been the type of place that Jesus and the disciples were in in the upper room. And as we read about the Last Supper. And very often this was a place for overflow for guests that would come. Well, certainly the people had to have been well aware of the headlines of that day concerning Jesus, the miracle worker. And now this paralytic man is longing to be healed first spiritually and then physically. Physically, he was probably what we would call a quadriplegic. In fact, his paralysis was so severe that We could surmise from this text that it had even affected his vocal cords. We have no indication that he even spoke in any of the gospel accounts. But also he knew that he needed to be healed spiritually, and we're going to see much more of that in a moment. But it's important for you to understand that most of the Jews of that day erroneously assumed that if anyone had any kind of a disease or an affliction, that it was because of their sin. That somehow the more serious the disease, the more serious the paralysis, the more wicked the sinner. That was the assumption of that day. Do you remember the disciples question in John nine? Remember, they passed by a man that was blind from birth and they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? And so that was the attitude of the day. And certainly this man and no doubt his family believed this as well, though perhaps he might have been uncertain as to what his sin might have been, whether it was his sin, his parents, his grandparents, because he was confused with his theology. Nonetheless, this would have been his thinking. So, first of all, we begin to see the power of faith that would cause this man to come to Jesus. Might I hasten to add, dear friends, that. Faith in Christ is really a gift from God. We read in Ephesians 2 that for by grace you have been saved through faith and that that not of yourselves. It is what? It is a gift from God, not only our salvation, but the grammar would indicate our faith as well. So obviously his faith in Jesus to save him from his sins gave evidence that that he was fully aware of his own sin. And he longed to be cleansed from his sin as well as, therefore, his disease, his paralysis. Now, put yourself in his position to think that you and your family were experiencing ongoing ridicule from your neighbors, from your friends. In most cases, these people were shunned. And, you know, a lot of that even occurs today, does it not? When you see people with severe 
abnormalities in their life, some kind of a paralysis. It's a sad thing. But especially because of the obvious disfigurement of his paralysis, I'm sure the people of that day would kind of shake their heads and and disgust, if not even contempt, as he walked by. Imagine the shame. Imagine the embarrassment. You know, this would add new meaning to the idea of poor self-esteem, would it not? But this man's faith in his Savior motivated him to seek the Lord Jesus. So, with hearts of compassion, we read in the Gospel accounts that, that four men, probably four of his family members, agreed to help him and agreed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and we need to, we need to get you there because he will help. He is gentle, he is compassionate, he is long-suffering. He can heal your disease, but more importantly, he can forgive sin, the cause of the disease. Perhaps they even remembered the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 33, when Isaiah predicted life in the kingdom someday, when the Messiah would rule, where it says in Isaiah 33:24, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. In other words, there'll be no sickness. The people who dwell in the kingdom will be forgiven their iniquity. Maybe they remembered that. So the idea here is that this paralytic man and his family were willing to say, forget the ridicule of the crowd. Ignore the scorn of the religious elite who think that somehow I am so wicked. And by all means, lay aside my my personal pride and any thoughts of self-righteousness, because now all that matters is for me to have my sins forgiven. And to have physical healing. And so with the power of faith, he was compelled And might I add that this faith that he had was given to him by God himself. It's a real burden of my heart. I'm presently working with several people who have lives that are every bit as tragic as this paralytic man. They're desperate. They're out of solutions. They have no way to turn, nowhere to turn, out of resources, despairing of life itself. Yet they refuse to come to Christ. They refuse to place their trust in Him. You know, many people are that way. They, they think they've got a hold of their life and things begin to fall apart. And you offer them, like a, like a man desperate for water, you offer them a cool drink and they refuse to take it. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because they need the gift of faith. And also it's because of the rebellion in their hearts. And so what becomes obvious here is with people that refuse the gift of faith is that there's something lacking. There's something that needs to occur. And I would submit to you that what needs to occur is something that will come from God as well as something that they must do as they repent of their sins. Well, this wasn't the case with the paralytic. In his desperation, he responds differently. And I want you to hear this. He responds to a holy calling of the Heavenly Father and he seeks the Savior Now, you might ask, how do you know there was a holy calling from the Father? Well, the answer is simple, because he came to Jesus and his sins were forgiven. Let me explain this, and I want to digress for a few minutes, if you'll stick with me here. And I feel it's important to do so because I've got several of you, you dear people, asking some very good questions with respect to the whole issue of the doctrine of Election and predestination and those types of things. I remember when I first started grappling with these things, I was I was so confused. I would get mad at God one day and get mad at a professor the next day and get mad at myself the next day. And by God's grace, I began to understand more of what God was speaking about. But several of you have asked for some clarification. You see all through the Bible, some of you have said, and rightfully so, this concept of election, of, of, of a holy calling from the Father, of, of predestination, of foreknowledge, which really means to be foreloved. You know, how, how can you harmonize all of that with man's role? What about man's? What about his will? Isn't he supposed to respond? How can you say that this man was called by the father when, in fact, it was he and his four friends that were the ones making the effort to go to Jesus? Well, first of all, might I say that because of the irreconcilable tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, 
people tend to go to one of two extremes. One extreme is passivity. Ah, don't worry about it. Let God handle everything. He's he's got everything under control. He's decreed everything uh, from eternity past. So just forget about it. Don't evangelize. We're, we're just kind of automatons. We just kind of walk around and do whatever God says. Well, that's a gross distortion of biblical truth. And some people swing to the other side and say, you know what? God doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It's all up to man. In fact, God kind of paces the floor room, the, the, the throne room of heaven, and he kind of bites his nails, hoping that people will somehow respond to the gospel so that he can have a church. And it's not really him that's building the church, but it's the preacher and other people that get people to make a decision for Christ. And many times what happens is rather than passivity, we become or we begin to play the role of the Holy Spirit and try to force people to make a decision no matter what. And also we see very often that revisionism occurs where people torture every text concerning election and predestination and calling to make the the their theology palatable. And all of these extremes are so wrong. Well, indeed, the paralytic responded to a holy calling. Why? Because Jesus says in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Draws in the original language, it comes from a verb elko and and it has the idea of to irresistibly compel or coerce to drag something away, to take possession, possession of something. In fact, the church is called the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so we see this man coming to Jesus. I know that the father drew him with an irresistible, irresistible compelling. In fact, you can read in Jude one. Jude says to those who are the called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus. A wonderful verse were the called, the loved and the kept a triumvirate of God's grace. By the way, the, the idea of love there, the beloved uh, in the grammar would indicate that we were loved in eternity past, in the present and forever. Isn't it wonderful to know that when you were called, you were also for loved and you continued to be loved and you are kept by the power of God. It all fits together. In Ephesians chapter one and verse four, we read that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in verse five, it says he predestined us. Predestined, by the way, the, the verb means to to mark out a boundary beforehand. We get our word horizon from that um, to mark out a boundary beforehand or literally to decide upon something beforehand. He predestined us to what? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, not ours. Verse 11, we have been predestined according to his purpose, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So the key to understanding sovereign grace and divine election is really two folks, uh, twofold, folks. And, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to elaborate on this much, but two things that, that you've got to begin to understand is, number one, the character of God and his eternal purposes with respect to revealing his glory. And then secondly, the total, absolute, consummate, utter depravity of man. You'll never appreciate divine election until you appreciate the depravity of man in, in Romans chapter three, verses one through 19. And by the way, we're going to get back to the paralytic. So hang on here. You will see that the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that because of the total depravity of man, man is utterly incapable of choosing Christ apart from some supernatural work. In fact, I want to give you a list of characteristics of fallen man, of people without Christ, the way I was once before Christ and his loves and mercy saved me. And this, I believe, will help you to understand why we are unable to choose God apart from him first choosing us. And by the way, as you understand the depravity of man, you're going to see that this flies in the face of all of the political rhetoric that we hear today. And even in our school systems, people would have us believe that man is more deprived than he is depraved. And I think of uh, Sean Hannity's new book. Maybe you've heard about it. Uh, Deliver us from evil. And he talks about I haven't read it yet. I've just heard about it. 
And he talks about how that, yeah, you know, evil really does exist. And unfortunately, he doesn't get into the biblical understanding of evil, but he says evil is basically terrorism and liberalism. And I think there's elements of truth to that. But, dear friends, it's far more. Let me tell you what the Bible says, and I'm not going to give you the verses, but they all come from various passages. And this is just a sample. Here's why man needs God to do something to him before he will ever choose Christ. Here's the depravity of man. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Our flesh is filthy. Our body has the stench of death. We are spiritually blind and deaf. Every imagination and every thought is continually evil. Our tongues are deceitful. Our heart is proud, deceitful, desperately wicked. Our lips are poisonous. Our throat is an open grave. Our eyes are full of adultery. Our hands do evil. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Our mind is depraved and reprobate. We never do anything for God and his glory. We never seek after God. The unregenerate leaves a trail of destruction wherever he or she goes. His will is hard and impenitent. His conscience resents and refuses God. He is utterly unable to save himself. He resents, rejects God and deserves an eternal hell. He gropes in utter spiritual and moral darkness. He is a slave to lust. He stumbles and does not know where he is. He can't see the light of the gospel of Christ because Satan has supernaturally blinded him. His father is the devil. His understanding is darkened and he is willfully ignorant. Divine truth is foolishness to him. He cannot understand it. He cannot apply it to his life because he has no ability to discern the truth of God. He is self-deceived, undiscerning. He gleefully follows false teachers. He is unable to please God on his own. He is at war with God, at enmity with God, has no capacity to exercise his will apart from divine regeneration. He can't control his thoughts, words, attitudes or actions or his lusts. He is consumed with pride, selfishness, idolatry and immorality. He is ignorant. His life and his mind is totally futile and worthless. And his, he is a fit companion only for his father, the devil and his demons. Now, beloved, may I ask you, do you really think that such a person has the ability to choose Christ apart from a holy calling? You see, man's greatest need is spiritual. Our children's greatest need is not education or not even to become moral good citizens. Their greatest need is to be regenerated, to have a new heart and a new mind and a new nature. And that is a work of divine grace. Now, when the father draws a man to himself, that is an inward, effectual call, the theologians would call it, and it is an irresistible call. In fact, in John 6.45, we read that everyone who has heard the Father comes to Him. Everyone. Absolutely nothing can prevent a sinner from responding to the Father's call when He summons one to Himself. You see, there's no need for manipulative altar calls and tear-jerking uh, stories to arouse the human will to get people to make a decision for Christ. What is needed is a clear and accurate and bold presentation of the gospel. And then the father uses that to call his own. You say, well, what is a clear presentation of the gospel? May I very briefly give it to you? You begin by telling people that God is holy and you are not that you have violated his law and that God hates sin and that sinners will never be able to stand in the presence of a holy God, that you are an enemy of God. And then you show them their sins specifically and you help them see that they are worthy of death and an eternal hell. And you explain to them that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. There is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. You cannot change your sin nature. You are utterly helpless. And then when they say, my, what am I going to do? Then you introduce to them Jesus, the Lord and the Savior, and you tell them that he is eternally God. He is Lord of all. You explain to them the incarnation, the atonement, the triumphant resurrection from the grave. And you tell them that he can give you his righteousness if you trust in him. And then you call them to repentance, call them to follow Jesus, call them to trust in Jesus as Savior. Ask them to count the cost. Realizing that it will be a life of self-denial. You may have to take up a cross even to death. But God will bless you not only in this life, but ultimately in the life to come. And then you urge them to come to Christ. And as the Father takes those glorious truths in His own sovereign purposes, He will be the one to take that gospel message and draw that person with an irresistible compelling to Himself. 
You see, friends, when the Father calls us with the holy calling, according to the New Testament, the rotting corpse of the human will is awakened out of its spiritual and out of its moral death. And suddenly a man's soul responds to the gospel of Christ. That's important for you to remember that there is a difference between what is called a general call. That's what Jesus did when he called every man to repentance. That's what preachers and missionaries would do. There's a general call to the gospel. But there is another call that's beyond that, that is called the Father's call or the holy calling. And this is an inward, effectual call. It is one that will accomplish what it's intended to do. And this is where people are compelled to respond. And then they will be born again into a new life. So remember, no one will ever come to Christ unless God the Father calls him. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, we read that God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, when the Father calls us, simultaneously the Spirit of God regenerates a dead soul to give it new spiritual life. And then the sinner will respond to the Father's call in faith-believing. This is the secret act of God in which He imparts new spiritual life. This is what it means to be born again. Well, some will say, well, wait a minute. You know, what about man's will? You know, I thought it was man's will, not not God's, that is the ultimate determiner in salvation. No, according to Scripture, certainly his will comes into play, and I'll explain that in a moment. But because of his depravity, he can't respond. He's too depraved. His sinful nature will not allow him to do it. That's why in John 1.13, the Lord says, We are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do we have a free will? Well, of course we do. I've got the free will to divorce my wife. Will isn't the issue. It's desire that's the issue. I have no desire to do that. If I can give you a more graphic illustration, I got a, I, I've got a wonderful but nasty old dog named Otis. Big old boxer, almost 100 pounds. He has no social graces, dear friends. And Otis has the will to joyfully, sacrificially, and... Even willingly share his food with the cats. But do you think he would exercise that will? No way. Why? Because he has no desire to do what he could do. You see, he needs a new nature. And that's the point. You see, man, apart from regeneration, apart from a new nature, loves his sin too much. So, beloved, the Father's calling is not predicated upon anything that you do. According to Scripture, man cannot choose God apart from the Father's calling and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I'd like more Scripture on that. All right. Second Timothy one, the end of verse eight through nine. Paul says, join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity in the Greek, literally before time began. Titus one verses one and two says the same thing. We are chosen of God before time began. You see, friends, this calling is a holy calling. It was a calling that was utterly uninfluenced by anything. We weren't even created yet. And it was predicated upon nothing that we have done, but according to his divine purposes, Salvation is all an act of grace and of love. You see, our depravity is too great for us to respond apart from that. That's why this is one of the most glorious doctrines in all of Scripture. We were predetermined to be saved in Jesus Christ from eternity past. By the way, this is why we are also secure in Christ forever. Our security has nothing to do with, with what we do any more than our salvation we are secure in Christ because in eternity past, we were chosen unto eternal glory. In Romans 8 and verse 30, you have a monumental passage on the whole process of salvation. It says, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see, friends, we're secure in Christ forever. Jesus said in John six thirty seven, all that the father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You see, the father gave the son a love gift in eternity past, which would be a redeemed humanity. And all of that gift will ultimately come to Jesus. 
And we know that at the end of time, he will give back that gift to the father as a reciprocal expression of his love. And beloved, don't have the audacity to think that for one second you could exclude yourself from that divine gift. You see, it's all such a marvelous act of sovereign grace. This whole thing of salvation. First comes the choosing, then comes the calling. Second Thessalonians two thirteen says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has and catch this chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I remember when I first began to learn this and much more about these concepts, I asked the question, now, wait a minute, how can you reconcile man being responsible to trust in Christ, even though he is utterly incapable of doing it apart from a supernatural work? How do you do that? What do you do with that? I mean, after all, John six thirty seven, the Lord says, anyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You're telling me that they can't come unless he says they can come. Well, the Bible says that. So how do you reconcile this? Moreover, you say that no one can come to Christ unless he has first been chosen. And then he's got to be called. How can God hold me morally accountable for not trusting in him if I wasn't chosen to begin with? Well, friends, let me give you the answer to that. I have no idea. I can't resolve that. Neither can you. There's never been a theologian to be able to resolve that. How do you resolve human responsibility with God's sovereignty that God doesn't tell us? How do you resolve moral accountability with divine election? I don't know. The decrees of, of God are secret. His, his ways are beyond our ability to even imagine. You know what? I, I can't understand the, the inspiration of Scripture either. I don't know how God could write this book through all of these men over 1,500 years. I, I don't understand that. I, I don't understand prayer where God says he's decreed the end from the beginning and nobody twists his arm and yet he asks us to pray. I don't understand how all that works. But this is clearly what God teaches. And you know what? He has also clearly told us we're not to even ask that question. Do you realize that? Especially, and I want you to catch this, with the blasphemous insinuation that somehow God is not fair. In Romans chapter 9, and we'll not go there, because I do want to get back to the paralytic. In Romans chapter 9, you read all about this very issue. The same question is asked as I'm asking here. And you know what God says in verses 20 through 21? Who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Friends, our ability to understand the infinite mind and purposes of God is so infinitely small that it is likened to us being a pot trying to reason with a potter. Can you imagine that? You're a potter, you make a pot, you set it over there and, and, and you put flowers in it or whatever. And all of a sudden that pot says, hey, 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 I want to talk to you. And you look at it and you, you got to be kidding. You're talking. What, what do you want? How come you made me this way? I, I don't like this. I don't like flowers in me. I want to be whatever. Well, obviously, it's hypothetical. It's ludicrous. And that's exactly why the Lord gives the example you see, friends, it is beyond our abilities to understand the inscrutable mysteries of God, the infinite mind of God. So please don't come along and try to revise Scripture so that somehow you can say, well, you know, I think what it was is he just looked down the annals of history and he could see who would and wouldn't. Beloved, nothing in Scripture indicates that. You have to torture every text to come up with that. Nor should you come along and say, well, you know what? I, I just think God is, is unfair, so I'm, I'm going to reject the whole thing. You've got to be kidding Genesis 18:25 says, "Shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" Who are you, pot? See, the fact of the matter is, sinners will perish because they reject the gospel. And we are saved because we are chosen. God said it, I preach it. I can't explain it. Both are true whether you can resolve it or not. 
Now back to Matthew. So the father speaks powerfully to that man. While the Holy Spirit worked powerfully in him, there you have the calling and regeneration. And now we see what Jesus does and nothing's going to stop him. With no regard for public humiliation nor the scorn of his fellow Jews, he responds to this effectual inward call, this holy calling of the Father. And he, and he longs for spiritual cleansing and for, and, and for physical healing. By the way, as a footnote, disease and disfigurement you must understand, it's not necessarily a direct consequence of sin. Just because you see someone with, with some severe disease or whatever doesn't mean that they're a bigger sinner than you are because you're healthy. Now, certainly, ultimately, it's a result of the curse. That's why we all struggle with these things. But here, dear friends, you see God and His sovereignty coming along with a graphic illustration of, of sin's savage effects on the human condition. So this is precisely why the Holy Spirit chose to record this miracle, and we will see it. Now, Mark and Luke's gospel elaborates upon the story. Four men come along, take their loved one on a stretcher. They didn't have wheelchairs in those days, so they carried them on a stretcher. They couldn't get him into the crowded room below where Jesus was at. And evidently, and everywhere you read in the gospel, you'll see there's just hordes of people around Jesus. Some of them are just marveling at what he was doing and others wanted to be healed. Very few of them wanted to have their sins forgiven. So they couldn't get in the room below. So what do they do? They go up the steps to the second floor and and uh, Luke's gospel tells us there were some tiles. Somehow they dismantled it. We don't understand all of that. And they they, they lower this dear man down in the presence of Jesus in front of all the people. Can you imagine the scene? John MacArthur poignantly puts it this way. He willingly and silently exposed himself to Jesus and to the whole crowd in all his physical, moral and spiritual ugliness. He was literally at Jesus feet and in his heart. He threw himself on Jesus mercy. Friends, what what a picture of the perfect blending of human responsibility to come and, and, and the father's effectual calling that made him do so. Can you imagine what must have been going through his mind? No doubt this man was embarrassed. He was, he, he was ashamed. He was humiliated. But he was, he was desperate. He was terrified. He was hopeful. And he was humble. No, but the power of faith eclipsed all of that and he moves now into the very presence of Jesus. Well, Jesus knew all of this that was going on in his heart. And we move from the power of faith to, secondly, the passion of forgiveness. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2. Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's very interesting. He uses a Greek term, tharseo, for take courage. It's a fascinating choice of words because, and I want you to catch this. This is important. It's technical, but it's important. See, this really denotes a deep, inner, subjective courage. That arises when the presence of danger has been eliminated, when, when, when suddenly there is no longer anything to fear. You see, he could have used another word, telmao in Greek, which means to just 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 suck it up. Just just be bold in the face of danger that remains. This is what my buddies would say to me. Cowboy up, you know. Yeah, the danger's still there. You know, suck it up, grit your teeth, stick out your chest and your chin. Even in the face of the cur- in the in the face of of your enemy, in the face of fear, take courage. That isn't what Jesus told him. But instead, he says, "Hey, there's no reason to be afraid." You know, indeed, coming face to face with Holy God as a wretched, unrepentant sinner, as an enemy with God, under divine judgment, would be a terrifying thing, would it not? But you know. That's not the case when you come to him in brokenness of heart and in humility with a with a desire to have your sins forgiven. As Jesus has said earlier in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, this man came with a brokenness of spirit. He was mourning over his sin. He was meek. He was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And Jesus, in his infinite compassion, responds to him and says, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
You know, I remember those words when I was a nine-year-old boy in a church and I recognized my sin over a period of time and I cried out for the Savior to save me. Do you remember that? You know, one of the amazing characteristics of the character of God is that He loves to forgive. In Ephesians 1, 7, we read that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. This, no doubt, is what inspired Charles Wesley to write that great hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? I want to read you two of the verses that really struck my heart. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. And then later in another verse, he says, no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him. My living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. And then the chorus goes, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Your sins are forgiven. Again, the Greek verb is so interesting here. It has the idea of, of, of discarding something, of, of sending or driving something away. They're gone, never to be remembered again. You know, when I was a young man, and I think I've told you the story before, I remember hearing, unfortunately, an ignorant preacher scare the living daylights out of me. He told me that, and he told the whole group, that someday there's going to be a giant screen in heaven. And Jesus is going to, or God is going to, play back all of our sins in front of everyone. Well, folks, I want to tell you, when I heard that, I cleaned up my act big time. Now, I didn't do it because I was convicted of sin or because I love the Lord. I just didn't want all that shown someday to everybody, you know, and I'm sure you you can imagine that. But you know what? That's not what the Bible teaches. There's no the Lord doesn't keep a record of wrongs. In fact, in, in Jude's wonderful doxology, he says that we're going to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. There's not going to be a screen. The Lord's taking care of that. You know, according to Scripture, we read that God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103.12 God completely cleanses us from the stain of our sins. Isaiah 1.18 God throws our sins behind His back. Isaiah 38.17 God remembers our sins no more. Jeremiah 31.34 God treads our sins underfoot. Micah 7.19 and God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 19. Oh, child of God, when you consider the wretchedness of your sin and compare it to the holiness of God, can't you see what a wonderful gift salvation is? What an inconceivable gift that we could be redeemed. And what was the price of our redemption? What did it cost God to do this? Well, First Peter 1.18 says that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. But verse 19 says, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This idea of redemption is so precious to me. We don't understand that necessarily in our culture, but in... Jesus' day, to be redeemed meant that you were a slave and somebody bought your freedom. Or if you were a prisoner of war, many times someone would come and pay a price and free you. And you know, this really fits what God says about us, because when you think about it, redemption means that we were once prisoners of a just God that sentenced us to an eternal hell, and justly so. Because we had violated his law, we were prisoners of divine judgment. But now, because of Christ, there is no condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. And we've also been redeemed from the slavery of our lust. Our lust refers to the, the strong desires that we have to do evil. That, that, that innate proclivity that we have 
for corruption and, and, and selfishness and pride and idolatry and immorality. It's that defect in the human heart that destroys reason and, and produces in us every imaginable kind of wickedness. And God has redeemed us from that slavery. He's also redeemed us from our ignorance, the Bible says, because our hearts and our minds are deceitful and desperately wicked. We're ignorant of the truth, 1 Corinthians 2.17. We can't even understand it. And we have a willful ignorance to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, according to Romans 1. He's redeemed us from all of that. And you know, the Bible also says that we're redeemed from the futility of life. In Ephesians 4.17, it speaks of the unregenerate, that they walk in the futility of their mind. By the way, futility means that we, our lives are empty, fruitless, worthless, without purpose, without value. That defines the condition of a person apart from Christ. Friends, if I can put it this way, in the grand scheme of God's glorious purposes, a life lived apart from Christ is worth absolutely nothing. I don't care how many awards you have, how many degrees you have after your name. I don't care how many books you have written. Your life, your entire existence was utterly useless. But God has redeemed us from that. If we've placed our faith in him. So having been chosen in eternity past, the father called this paralytic with a holy calling and the Holy Spirit breathed into his soul spiritual life. And then he responded to Jesus with the power of faith. And Jesus then passionately forgave him. And then as we hasten on this morning to begin to wrap this up, we see the pattern of futility in verses three through six. As men think, oh, this guy's blasphemy. You see, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the Jewish elite refused to believe that Jesus was God and refused to believe that somehow he could forgive sins. But, you know, in truth, they hated the fact that Jesus had defined sin in such a way as to expose their hypocrisy. Their hearts were hard and calloused. They had become impervious to divine truth. They must have been startled when Jesus read their minds. And so Jesus, in effect, was saying to them, all right, guys, since you men believe that this man's sin has caused his disease and his deformity, and since you believe that only God has the power and the authority over both, I am going to give you once again some irrefutable evidence that I am exactly who I claim to be. Your Messiah, God, very God. So while you may not be able to see the evidence of the forgiveness of this man's sin, you will see the evidence of, of my power and my authority over the consequences of sin as I heal him. And in so doing, what I will do is expose the pattern of your futile lives, of your meaningless religion. I'm going to expose your empty hearts, your worthless attitudes, your miserable attempts to indict me with your wicked and idiotic blasphemies. And so he looks over at the paralytic. And he says, rise. Take up your bed and go home. As if to say, I rest my case. The old Puritan John Trapp put it this way. He was healed from both sides. Isn't that great? Both spiritually and physically. So in this incredible narrative, we have seen the power of faith, the passion of forgiveness, this pattern of futility to somehow think that God is not who he says. And finally, we see the prominence of fear and the reaction of the crowd. In verse 8, we read that they were filled with awe, phobeo, in Greek, we get our word phobia from that. By the way, don't get the wrong idea. And sometimes the English can give this to you. It's not the idea of they were filled with terror and, and, and they were horrified. But rather what it's referring to is they were filled with a reverential awe. They, 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 they were filled with a consuming, overwhelming reaction of, 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 of wonderful worship. They were... Filled with an esteemed veneration, if I can put it that way. They were astonished 
an astonishment that led them to praise. You see, friends, this is the stuff of genuine worship. This is what Peter, James and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ revealed his glory to them. This is what the shepherds saw when they saw the glory of God descend and the angel had to say to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. You know what? This is also the response of the people when God killed Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied and exposed their blasphemous pride. And frankly, this will inevitably be the response of everyone who encounters the power and the authority of the living Christ. Who alone can forgive sins. Friends, may I just humbly invite you to come to him in the power of faith believing and experience the Lord's passion to forgive sins. Don't be like the religious elite and be caught up in the pattern of futility to try to say that Christ was not who he was. But make your priority the fear of the Lord. And I would submit to you that if you will humble yourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and see him as the God that he was and is and come to him in faith, believing as you do that, that is evidence of the father's calling. And the Lord says that anyone that comes to me, I I will not cast out one single one. And may I encourage you to do that this day if you haven't. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. Inspire us with them, Lord, that we might understand more of who you are, but beyond that, Lord, that we might love you more. Lord, may we never lose the wonder of your amazing grace in our life. Lord, thank you that you have told us enough in your word that we can be obedient. We know that the secret things belong to you. But Lord, give us the humility and the faith to let those other things rest that we can't fully understand. And Lord, finally, I would pray as your servant, Lord, I plead with you for those that I know that are within the sound of my voice right now in this room that know nothing of you as Savior. Oh, God, make them so miserable that they will set aside their pride And their ugliness and their shame. And maybe even their self-righteousness. And run to the foot of the cross and ask you to save them. That they too might experience the miracle of the new birth. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.